So the reading this evening is Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Well, the old saying is, um, familiarity breeds contempt, isn't it? And that's true. Uh, Sometimes I think there's as much familiarity breeding boredom going around, isn't there? There's something about us as humans that causes us to quickly become underwhelmed by things that previously seemed so wonderful. Technology that was groundbreaking soon becomes old Uh, Shiny new things that had caught our eye soon become dull. Even the breathtaking views of this lovely town actually do get a bit mundane once you've seen them enough times, even though that might be hard for you to believe. And this evening we've reached the third of three healings that Matthew speaks about in this section of his gospel. Alastair spoke to us um, about the healing of a man with leprosy on Saturday. Uh, James told us the story of the healing of the centurion servant uh, last night. And this evening, we have this brief account of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and a general list of other healings and deliverances. With that list, there's no real detail, just a comprehensive demonstration of Jesus' ability to bring relief to a crowd of sick, injured, and possessed individuals. I wonder what you make of this evening's account. Now, of course, it's miraculous, and it would have been stunning to watch, but I wonder if there's a part of you, um, especially if you've been a Christian for um, a while, or around church at least for a while, that's a bit kind of nonplussed by the whole thing. Uh, A middle-aged lady in her sickbed gets cured of a fever. Uh, A random group of people get cured of some nondescript illnesses, and perhaps it all just feels a little bit mundane, and we've all become a little bit numb to it. I think that is how I feel sometimes, just like the shiny new technology or trinkets becoming dull and old hat. The more I read about uh, the miracles of Jesus, the more I skim through them, the more I kind of shrug my shoulders and go looking for something more exciting. And when you stop to think about that, you realize how ridiculous that is. And this is one of the great benefits of the fact that this week we're working through this chapter quite slowly, just a couple of verses at a time, because it means that we're able to pause, to take a few deep breaths, and to listen more closely to what it is that the Lord is saying and what it is that he wants us to see. Our title for this evening is The Meaning of Jesus' Healings. And that's what we're going to discover. Matthew has told us this little account for a reason. 
And so let's work out what that reason is. What is the meaning of Jesus' healings? And as we look at these few verses of Matthew 8, I want us to notice four things. We're going to see two things about what Jesus is like, and we're going to see two things about what he's doing. Let's begin with what he's like. The first thing that we see is his authority. Jesus has the authority to heal. The apparent ease with which he heals and restores is almost casual, isn't it? He touches Peter's mother-in-law's hand and she is healed. He speaks a word and spirits are cast out. There's no ritual or faff or even effort. He just does it and it happens. Sickness and demons are no match for Jesus. And maybe we know this already, but it does bear kind of mentioning and reflecting on. If we've become too familiar with the stories and miracles, then perhaps we can end up being a little underwhelmed. But let's not be. Let's slow down and picture the scene. Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever. Now, most of us will know what it is to have a fever. Um, Usually for us, it's not too serious. Perhaps you might have a bit of flu. You feel rough, uncomfortable for a couple of days. Then you feel weak and tired for a few more days, and then it's over. And yet sometimes for us and those who we love, fever is more serious. Um, And in this day and place, it certainly was. There was no medicine for either the fever um, or for what was causing it. And so she was very, very unwell and very much at risk. Um, And lots of us here will be able to identify with that, especially over the last couple of years. Um, Living in the West uh, in the 21st century had kind of lulled us into a false sense of security, hadn't it? Where we assumed that no illness or disease was really a match for our scientific discoveries, our clever doctors and our shiny machines and amazing medicines. And then we were suddenly faced with something unknown and frightening. Many of us will have felt this fear, and many of us will have watched helplessly, desperate for a cure. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law and her family were probably very afraid of what was going to happen. But then Jesus walks in, touches her hand, and immediately she is well. And it's not just that the fever breaks and she kind of gradually gets better. No, she is instantly restored to full health. So much so that she can get out of her sickbed and start to wait on her honoured guest. Can you imagine feeling well enough to start cooking and serving when you've just been in bed with a fever? I want at least a couple of days on the sofa in my dressing gown to recover, and yet she's immediately up, well enough to get start working. That is the strength of the power of Jesus' healing. In verse 16, we're told that he casts out spirits with a word and he cured all who were sick. There's no detail of um, what kind of illnesses uh, and infirmities plagued the people who came to visit. And that was probably Matthew's point. It didn't matter uh, what kind of an illness you had had, Jesus could heal you. We've seen a taste of that already in the chapter, haven't we? Uh, Leprosy, paralysis, now fever, they're no match for him. And more than just physical illness, Jesus had power over spiritual forces as well. With a word, the demons fled. 
later in the week, um, we're going to come to a passage that deals more with the reality of demons. So we won't dwell on it now, but it is at least worth acknowledging the significance of what is going on in here in Matthew's brief description. People are brought to Jesus suffering from demon possession, something that is total evil has taken them over. It is torturing them and their families who love them. This is terrifying. And again, it's without a solution or a cure. And then again, Jesus, still in charge and with a word, speaks and the demons flee. And those who were held captive are set free. This is true authority. And it shows us not just what Jesus is like, uh, powerful, very powerful, but also who he is. Because only God has that kind of power and authority. The one who created human flesh, bones and blood, cells and synapses, is the one who has the power and authority to command healing. He made us, and so he has authority over us, including authority over our biology. Jesus is the word who spoke creation into existence, And so it's only reasonable to see that he can also speak evil spirits into submission and human flesh back into working order. Is it any wonder then that Peter comes to believe in the identity of Jesus with such confidence? He has just witnessed, up close and personal, the total miraculous healing of someone who he knows and loves in his very own home. What an impact that must have had on him in the days, weeks, months, and years following. And as we grasp hold of that same truth through Matthew's account, what an impact it has on us too. Jesus has the authority to heal. If you find yourself, like I am sometimes, tempted to become a little bored with this truth, Take a moment to stop and marvel at the breadth and depth of Jesus' power and authority. We see very clearly that Jesus has the authority to heal, but what we should also notice is that Jesus has the compassion to heal. He doesn't wield his authority and power as a tool of oppression. Rather, he uses his power and authority for the good of others. And we see this especially in the way that he interacts with Peter's mother-in-law. As I mentioned earlier, we've already seen a couple of other instances of Jesus healing people in this chapter. Um, And one thing that all three have in common is the fact that each person healed would have been seen by the society around as outcasts. A person with leprosy, a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, and now a woman. The Jewish religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, all of that crowd, would have been suspicious of each of the three and would have kept their distance. But Jesus doesn't. He goes into Peter's home. He goes to his mother-in-law lying sick in bed and he touches her. The religious authorities of the day would have regarded her fever and her femaleness as something that could and would make them unclean. And so they would have kept away. But Jesus doesn't. He goes to her and he touches her hand. Even though we know he actually didn't need to, 
we saw last night with the story of the centurion servant that he could have easily healed her with a word and from a distance and yet he chooses to come to her in her sickness and to reach out and touch her because he is compassionate and gentle. We, don't, we know, don't we, how wonderful a gentle, kind and safe touch is. One of the things that all of the social distancing over the last couple of years has taught us is how much we value and therefore missed physical touch. Um, Anybody who knows me at all will tell you that I am not a touchy-feely person. Um, But even I miss hugging people. Um, We are made for connection in that way. And so that is what Jesus does. He is gentle and kind. And and that's important for us to know and see. And so Matthew points it out to us. Often we think that power and gentleness are opposites. And yet Jesus shows that they're not. He does both perfectly and all at once. And in doing so, he offers us a word for the way that we wield power as well. All of us have power to some degree at work, in church, in leisure, at home, um, in leadership positions and responsibilities that we hold, in relationship with friends or spouses or children, even in the way that we use our money. And our temptation can be to use that power for our own advantage, to demand respect, to order people to serve us and our needs, to take advantage of others for our comfort or satisfaction. And yet Jesus offers us a better and more beautiful way to use our power. He uses his power to serve, to bring healing and comfort, hope, and restoration. And if we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, then our power should be used in the same way, compassionately, gently, offering safety and restoration, even or perhaps especially when it costs us something to do so. That is the way of Jesus. Over the last couple of years, many of our churches and denominations have been woken to the reality of what happens when power is misused and abused. Some have used their power and authority to commit unspeakable crimes and inflict grievous harm. Others have used their power and authority to manipulate, bully and intimidate. And many of us have ignored or overlooked or excused their behaviour, saying, well, that's just what he's like or... She's under a lot of pressure. None of that is acceptable or excusable. True power and authority doesn't look like bullying or manipulation or intimidation. It looks like gentleness, compassion, and sacrifice. It looks like Jesus. So we've seen the two things that Matthew wants us to see about what Jesus is like, his authority and his compassion. Let's move on now to the things he wants us to see about what he's doing. Firstly, we see that Jesus' healings are fulfillment of God's word. Matthew loves to show us how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. 
And there are many instances in the Old Testament which speak about the healing of illness and infirmities. Uh, There are many stories throughout Israel's history of God bringing healing from disease for individuals like Miriam and Naaman and Abimelech and Nebuchadnezzar um, and rescuing the nation from plagues um, as he does in Numbers 16 and 2 Samuel 24. There are wonderful stories of people being restored from death to life in 1 and 2 Kings and there are many promises and declarations about God being the one who heals and restores. Psalm 103 verses 2 and 3 encourages us to praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. And in Isaiah 35, the hearers are encouraged about the day when the Lord comes with these words, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. But here, in Matthew 8, something a little bit different is happening. In this instance, he's quoting from Isaiah 53. There, the prophet Isaiah was writing 700 years before this moment in Matthew's account and talking about a figure called the Lord's servant. This servant was going to be sent by the Lord to bring justice to the earth and to draw both Israel and the rest of the nations back to God. Um, And Matthew is quoting these verses from Isaiah here in chapter 8 because he wants us to understand that Jesus is that servant, that everything that was promised about the servant is fulfilled in Jesus. And here, that means that what Isaiah 53 had to say about the servant, specifically that he was going to suffer and die in order to complete the work he was sent to do. So if you've got a Bible, um, will you turn to Isaiah 53? Um, And we're going to look at it together for a moment. These are the verses that we read together uh, before. Um, But if you'll turn there, I will just read it for us again to remind us what it says. Isaiah 53, beginning the middle of verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. These are familiar verses to us. Um, So maybe we forget what a surprise they should be. 
This is speaking about the servant of the Lord, a man who is sent by God to do a big and very important job, a man chosen by God to bring justice and reconciliation, and yet he doesn't look anything like the type of leader that you would expect. We're told that he won't look special, that he'll be despised by us and looked down on. That doesn't sound much like a king, does it? And yet it absolutely is. This is part of God's plan to bring justice and reconciliation because this servant is going to be the one who bears the cost. As the one who is despised, he will take on our sins and sorrows and make them his own. He will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He looks unimpressive and rejected by us, and yet all the while he is taking our punishment and bearing the judgment of God that should have been ours. He dies in our place. He goes willingly and without complaint. Again, it really is pretty startling when we stop and pause and think about it. Why has Matthew chosen this passage of scripture to talk about healing? As we've seen, there are loads of other places that he could have gone if he wanted to just tick some boxes to show that the Messiah is a miracle worker or that God really cares about these sorts of things. But the fact that Matthew chose this particular scripture is because he is saying something much bigger and more specific about the meaning of these healings. The point that is being made here is more than just that the servant will bring healing and forgiveness. Rather, it's about how he's going to do that. This healing is going to come at cost to him. He will take on our suffering and sickness, our sin and our shame, and in doing so, he will bring healing and forgiveness to us. This passage is talking about the cross and what Jesus' death and resurrection can and does achieve. And so then this leads us to our final point. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' healings are anticipating something much, much bigger. The reason that Matthew tells us this story and declares that it is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53 is because it's pointing towards the cross. Jesus' ministry is heading for a brutal death on a hill outside of Jerusalem. He is going to go to the cross in order that he can take our sin, our sickness, and our suffering on his shoulders and deal with it for us. And the picture painted in this chapter of Matthew is a snapshot of the world, um, of our world, where things aren't right. Skin diseases, paralysis, fever, demon possession are all symptoms, symptoms of something infinitely worse. Sickness and suffering aren't how things are supposed to be. They are evidence of a world that is broken. Creation that was made good has been subjected to frustration and put in bondage to decay as a result of our sin. And it's not that when we are sick or injured that that is a direct result of our sin, but rather the effect of sin on this world 
has brought sickness and suffering into reality. What Jesus has come to do is to put all of that right. He goes to the cross to deal with our sin, and in doing so, he deals with our sickness too. Sometimes this passage has been used in a wrong and unhelpful way. Sometimes people have used this passage to promote the idea that God promises us physical healing now. That misunderstanding and misuse of God's word can and has been used to shame and mislead people. Uh, One friend of mine who's partially sighted told me about when a group of Christians surrounded him without warning or uh, asking for permission to pray for his healing. And then when his sight wasn't restored, they told him it was because the spirit knew he didn't have enough faith. That is an ugly and extreme example that many of us would recognize and rebuke quickly. But it also happens in subtler ways, which we are much more likely to be susceptible to and much more likely to be guilty of passing on to others as well as to ourselves. In particular, I think we see this with depression, anxiety, and other mental health difficulties. We are quick to assume that God should and will heal us. And so if he doesn't and hasn't, then we must have done something wrong. We must have missed something. We must be lacking in faith. Brothers and sisters... That is not true. If you are having a hard time getting your head around this, can I encourage you to read your way through Acts and Paul's letters? In those books, we see the joy of the early church, full of the Spirit, seeing God work in miraculous ways, uh, healing diseases, sending angels and earthquakes to set people free from um, prison and raising people from the dead. But we also see followers of Jesus beaten and not healed. We see others arrested and not set free. We see people executed for following Jesus. And we see Paul wrestle in prayer over his thorn in the flesh before he comes to understand that he will not be healed because the Lord has promised to give him the grace necessary to endure it. Paul was not healed. Not because he lacked the faith necessary, but because God had a different plan in mind. Sometimes God will heal, sometimes he won't, but he always has something bigger in mind, as he did in Matthew 8. Jesus did these miraculous healings to fulfill that wonderful prophecy in Isaiah. He came to take up our sin and sickness, our shame and our suffering. He took it upon himself on the cross and put it all to death. And then he died and was raised to life again. Jesus did these miraculous healings to point us towards a wonderful future. By his death and resurrection, he has made a way for us to be restored and for this whole creation to be restored. But at the moment, we're living in this tension of the now but not yet. Jesus' work is finished. He has completed it. But until he returns, we still live with the consequences of sin in our lives and in this world. Even those people healed, the leper, the centurion servant, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, the others who are unnamed, 
None of them were going to stay healed in that way. Death was going to come to all of them eventually. And so they needed something more, something that would last, something permanent and all-encompassing. Sickness and disability are still part of this world and our lives right now, whilst we wait for his glorious return. And in the meantime, on occasion, he kindly allows shafts of sunshine to break through the clouds and gives us a glimpse of what's to come. The Lord can and does heal still today, and so we can and should pray, but let's do so with the same faith humility and obedience expressed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel when they faced the fiery furnace for disobeying the king and refusing to worship his image. Do you remember the story? These young men have been taken into exile in Babylon. The king has erected this statue and requires all the people to worship it. If they don't, they'll be thrown into a furnace and killed. The men refuse to worship anyone other than the Lord's And when they're challenged, they make this declaration. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The Lord was able to rescue them and he did. They are thrown into the furnace and God miraculously intervenes to spare their lives and show his power to the king. The Lord is able to heal us, but even if he does not, he is still good and we can and should still worship him, certain and secure in the knowledge that one day we will be with him in the restored and renewed creation and see for ourselves that everything wrong has been made right. On that day, we will see John's vision from Revelation 21 with our own eyes. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This takes us back then to what we saw earlier about what Jesus is like. He is God. Only God promised that he would come and do what Jesus did. And God is the only one who can promise what Jesus' death and resurrection anticipate for us. He is the only one with that power and he's the only one with that compassion. He will put an end to our sin and suffering and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Friends, as we come to an end this evening, let me leave you with a couple of pieces of application for us. Matthew wrote this gospel in order that we might know who Jesus is and that we might come to worship him. And these verses um, give us a couple of ways to do that. Firstly, 
Let's put our confidence and trust in Jesus because he is infinitely trustworthy. It may be that you've never done that before, or it may be that you need a reminder to keep doing it today. But look at the Lord Jesus as we see him here in Matthew 8 and see that you can trust him. He is the promised servant of the Lord, come to deal with our sin and all of its consequences. He is the Lord himself with the power and authority to command spirits and sicknesses. And he is gentle and compassionate with the love and kindness and willingness to care for all of our needs. He is worth following. He is worth putting our trust in. And secondly, let's rejoice in the hope of Jesus because it is infinitely good. We have a certain and wonderful hope because of him. Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy of Isaiah to suffer and die in our place in order to restore us to relationship with God and to secure a future where pain and suffering are no more and where every tear is wiped away. That is such good news. In times of joy as well as times of suffering, We have so much to look forward to, so let's rejoice and thank him and let's worship him because he is worthy. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your uh, glorious gospel. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus um, with his power and his compassion. We thank you that he fulfills um, every prophecy and that he promises such a glorious future. Help us to be grateful um, and help us to continue to put our trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.